Love it. All right, so welcome to our soap series. And this is this thing that we do, and this is our, the, the little thing. But here's what soap is. For those who don't know, I'm just going to go over this so that everybody's on the same page. SOAP is this acronym for, first you have a passage of scripture. You can read it on your own. You can pick any passage you want. This is just a way of engaging. And by the way, we looked at two weeks ago, not just scripture, but life. Okay, you look at life and this, you do a SOAP on life, and it's going to bring you to a certain place. But in scripture, you read it, you're looking for the speed bump. It may be a concept, it may be a phrase, it may be a wording, whatever it is, something that sort of catches you and makes you stop so that you wait on it and you do observation on it. You know, this, this unique human ability to contemplate, to, to work through, to what does that mean? Why did that stop me? What, what is it in there? And, and you work it and you work it and you work it and you work it until all of a sudden one day you go, or one moment in your soaping you go, oh, the revelation. Oh, wow, wow. I mean, God put that speed bump there for you to slow down, smell the rose, and get something from it. And when you do, the application becomes incredibly obvious. You know, I mean, this is how this applies to my life, so I'm applying it. And then you pray, and you seal it, and that's a soap. Now, in order to do a soap, you can pick any passage you want, or you can do what we recommend a lot, which is you can go right to our website. There's the soap in the bottom. These are the values in the bottom that's why there's two different menus. And you can go down here to the bottom of the soap page, and you can download the soaps thing and read it out of your own Bible. Or you can go up and you can hit it. It'll take it right to Bible Gateway, and you can look at it with commentaries and all kinds of different things. Okay? So that's what, that's what a soap is. Now, two weeks ago when I preached, I said, oh, man, I got this thing that's burning in me. It was actually part of that sermon, and I felt like God said, no, you got to take it out. And I took it out. But I was going, oh, let me do this soon. Let me, remember I said it during the sermon, I said, I got this thing going on inside of me that I really want to do soon. And sure enough, it was this Monday soap, which I read a week ago, because I, you know, I read ahead so that I would know what to work on this week for the sermon. So I was ahead in the soaps. But on, on literally the day after I said, oh, I really want to preach this, I came up with a soap. I, I mean, the first soap, you'll see it in just two seconds, the first soap was just precisely on point with what I want to talk about, so thank you, God. But in order to set us up a little bit, I want you to understand why I'm so excited about this. I've been ministering here for, I don't know, is it 14 years, 13 years, 14 years, something like that. Long time. I don't remember how old I am either, so, you know, don't take that as anything. But, but the bottom line is, not quite, I think I'm 55, okay? I think. You're probably right, though, Karina, you, you're always right. Okay, but what happens is, is that when I was, when I was doing that particular sermon, I was, I was talking about this thing that I wanted to do, and the reason why it was so important to me was, is because I think in all the years that I've been ministering, that's just that many years here, there's been years other places, I think there's two things that God has done in me that, that swamp the importance of all the other things I've ever done, and if you know me very well, you know that in ministry I've tried a lot of things. I mean, how many ideas has this church tried? To the point that some people say, oh my God, a new idea, I'm running for the hills. Right? But the point is, is there's two things that I think are really critical. One of them, this big thing we've been working on now for, what, three years almost? Steering teams. This idea that God started talking to me in my walks over a period of months. He started unfolding to me more and more and more how bad discipleship had actually become in the American church and that he was going to change that. Not every church would participate in it, but that he was going to bring about circumstances that were going to cause churches to rethink because discipleship was falling through the floor. And sure enough, months later, for the first time, research started coming out. We're going darker in this auditorium. If we could not do that, that'd be great. I'd love to see faces. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, but, but the point is, is that as I was doing that, I'm sorry, I lost my place this little bit. I'll get it back. Steering teams. The, the, the point about steering teams was, is what I think we've done in the church is we've, by having the prosperity to hire the pros, you know, the pastor for worship, the pastor for kids, the pastor for youth, the pastor for college, the pastor for marriages, the pastor for family, the pastor for community, the pastor for everything. By going to the pros, what happened was, is God intended us to enter into our callings. He gave everybody a role, everybody a purpose, everybody something to do, a real calling that he intended to disciple you through. 
experiencing God tells you the only way that you can really find out about God is to join him in what he's doing. And so steering teams is not about getting work done in the church. Steering teams is about discipleship. Steering teams is about people taking weight and ownership of real ministry, things that are making a difference in people's lives in such a way that, that they're having to go to God. And then God moves, and then they realize something, and then they find something else about God. And all of a sudden, you're in this dynamic with God where he just, you know, it's not, it's not you don't become consumed with God because you decide to become consumed with God. You become consumed with God because you start doing things and you find out how much better and bigger and more wonderful he is than anything else. And that doesn't mean you quit your job and go into full-time ministry because as I'm saying, it's the opposite of that. It's that he's got you in there too. And the ministry that you're doing plays out there too. So this is steering teams. And I think that this is the most important thing that I've ever dealt with. Except for maybe this one that I'm talking about today. There's another thing that he started working on me about four to five months ago, four months ago, maybe five. But on my walks, every day, talking to God, asking him about things, just listening to him, taking the time to slow down and really hear him in the still, small, quiet voice way, he started whispering a thing into my heart about the missing piece, not just in the church, but in the entire culture that we were losing, we were in the process of losing something that was for our, that was going to be very bad for us. And it was a very personal element to it about what he was calling me to, which I still do not really have a clue about. I have some sense of what it is and I have some dimension about it, but I don't personally understand it yet. This is like steering teams. How many sermons have you heard about steering teams? As we developed it and as God has been moving us and casting vision, God's been casting vision for us. And in the same way, I feel like he's casting vision in my heart and he's doing this. But I'm far enough along now that I want to introduce you to this topic as a congregation because I think that this is something that God is going to start doing with us in an ever bigger way. So I'm incredibly excited about this, this sermon. I'm so thankful he's letting me do it now, even though it's August and a lot of people are gone. But if it's the beginning of a conversation, if it's the beginning of a dialogue, if it's the beginning of an investigation about what God's doing, you know, it will all catch up over time. And so the point is, let me take you to where this is. Okay, so the passage was right here, Acts. So there's Old Testament, New Testament, and the soap. This is the first verses on the soap on Monday morning after I said, oh God, please let me do this sermon soon. And here it is. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, this is the early church and they're growing like a weed, right? Hard feelings develop among the Greek-speaking believers called Hellenists toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows, the Greek ones, were being discriminated against in the daily food uh, lines and in the, in the rationing and so on. Not rationing because that implies scarcity. There wasn't scarcity, but just their, their, their widows weren't getting the same thing in the same way. So the 12, the disciples, called a meeting of the disciples... And that's all of them. And they said, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the word of God to help with the care of the poor. Or as, as uh, Holman Christian says, to help with financial matters. So friends, choose seven men from among you who everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned task of prayer and speaking God's word. Now, here's what... Can you, can you guess what tripped me up there? The apostles have just said, we're not going to spend our time on the poor. Can I just say something? That doesn't sound very pastoral to me. Right? If a pastor stood up here and said, I really feel like God doesn't want me to be concerned with the poor. What would you say? What kind of a moron are you? You know what I mean? Let's get a pastor who cares about people and understands God's heart for them. Well, understand, the apostles were not saying that we don't care about them. The apostles were actually resourcing them much more. How? Well, look what they were doing. They assigned seven men filled with the Holy Spirit of good reputation, filled with good common sense to take care, better care, than people who have too much on their plate already. See? They're not saying we don't care about them. They're saying there's a way to do this in the Lord that takes better care of them. 
We call these guys deacons, by the way. There's the structure, biblically, right? Elders, deacons. Apostles would be functioning in an elder position. That's bishop overseeing. And then deacons would be the ones who would be doing the work. And we think about this age-wise, and there is a correlation with age, very much so. But it's not restricted to that. But the bottom line is, is that you have this dynamic going on where these deacons are being told. Now, remember who these people are. This is Philip. You know Philip? Philip is a guy who's going to cities and preaching the gospel and making a huge difference. He's the guy who comes alongside the eunuch, leads him, leads him to the Lord, baptizes him, and gets translated away when he comes up out of the water. Stephen is the one who's in Jerusalem talking with the Jewish believers, and, and nobody can come against him. His words are so true, they're so right, they're so God, that nobody can actually withstand him to the point that they get irate at him and stone him to death. These guys are not just sort of setting up the chairs. Can I just make it clear what's actually happening right here? This is the world's first steering team. I'm not kidding. Look at it. Honestly, this is the world's first steering team. This is a group of people who have been called to a task. They've been assigned. They've been anointed. They've been appointed. And what they're doing now is they're entering into the thing that God wants them to do, and that is taking over the whole of their lives, and they're going more and more and more to the things of the gospel and the things of God, even though they still have other responsibilities. There's no sense that these people were paid in professional staff at all. Do you see that? Right? Now, the interesting thing for the journey that God has me on is what are the apostles, what are they doing? He says to the apostles, I don't want you doing that. Can I tell you what the modern church pastor's job is? He's the CEO of a company. I hate this. This, this is so stupid. And it's so wrong. And it's just a complete bastardization of what God intended. The modern CEO has a fairly, you know, we're, you know, we're not as big as some, but we're not small either. And we got, we're a fairly sizable business. And the modern CEO who's in charge of a business has to do what? Take care of the division over here and the division over here and the division. And he's got to go to this meeting for these people. And he's got to go to this meeting to figure out this. And he's helping to oversee this. And he's doing this. And yes, he's delegating. But the bottom line is, he's responsible for the whole. He's working as a president of a company, responsible for the tasks of the company. In fact, I said the modern pastor is a CEO. More accurately, he's actually the president, because the president is the one that's actually getting their hands dirty. The president is the one that's got their hands in everything, and I'm a huge delegator. I, I find people that can do th anointed things, you know, JJ with the youth and, and the worship steering team and, and the, the, the facility steering team and the uh, youth steering team and so on, and we empower them. And they are responsible for doing that. And I delegate as much of this away as I can because I don't believe that the pattern of being the president of a company is what God has called me to. I was the president of a company. I don't want to do it again. I'm not called to it. I am called to something else. You remember two weeks ago when I was talking and I said, here's the way the world is. The world has all this noise in it, but there is this low, small, still, quiet voice of God that is in the middle of that noise, and that what we do in a devotional is to try and find that noise. Can I tell you what I think my role is supposed to be? I'm supposed to be finding that low, still, small, quiet voice of God. I, I did it just so that you'll remember it for those who are here. This is, this is that, those black lines are, you know, the, the noise of the world. Okay, this is, this division needs this, and this community needs this, and the prayer team needs this, and these people need this, and this is all the things you're doing, but you see as it goes, there's this low, that low noise was in there from the very beginning, and you didn't hear it when all the noise was there. I think what a, you see, a pastor is a person that cares for somebody. I don't even know what to call what it is that I feel like God's calling me to do, except elder. If I could say it this way, what I'm supposed to be doing is I'm supposed to be, you, you can't find that red line if you're filled with other noise. You can't find that red line if you block scheduled yourself 
two hours on Monday and two hours on Wednesday, Tuesday and two hours on Wednesday and, and to write a sermon on Thursday. You, that's, it's not about that. What did the apostles say that they were giving themselves to? They were not running the business. They were praying. They'd gone into another place. They were spending time with the Lord. The kind of time that it takes to hear ever more greatly that still, small voice. Now, I want to say something right now. This is not a sermon about me and about pastors or senior pastors, whatever you want to call them doing this. I want to tell you something. Every person in this room that is of a certain age is being called to this place. We're overcoming it through Red Bull, through caffeine, because we have to perform at another stage of life. Watch what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm not even going to read all this because I'm going to read it to you, but I'm going to just taking all this apart in a different way. So let me just show you how I'm taking it apart and showing it to you. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. Some of you have heard me do this a lot. This is a very important, I think, foundational thing that God wants us to understand. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I've written to you, children, which he says in another place. I've written because you've come to know the Father. In this one section, he talks two times to children, two times to young men, two times to fathers. Right? So, little children, you see what he's saying? He's saying, you found the Lord. You found the Father. You've come into a relationship with Him. Your sins have been forgiven. Isn't it awesome? Isn't it wonderful? This is the joy of childhood, right? This is the playing in the garden of God because you're reconnected relationally with Him. This is awesome. This is fun. This is wonderful. But there does come a time when you're supposed to grow from milk to meat and you start doing a young man's thing or a young woman's thing as I'll get to. I am writing to you, young people, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, young people, because you are strong. God's word remains in you. You have victory over the, evil, over the evil one. Now, look what's being said here. When he says young people, he's not just saying, uh, you know, teenagers. It certainly includes teenagers, very much so. But he's going much further up into the demographic, as we're going to see here in a moment. Okay? This has to do with a lot of people who actually have kids, but are still in that young person stage of life where what you're doing is overcoming the evil one. You're in the world. You're making a difference. You've, you're, you're putting your all to it. And you're going after it. It's awesome. But then he says this about, I'm going to, fathers, but can I almost have you, every time you hear fathers, can I almost have you think grandfather? Because the imagery is better. Because we've got right sitting in this room, we've got fathers of young kids. And he's not talking about that. He's talking about the person that has gotten to another place in life. It's one thing as a father to know how to raise a children when you have young kids, right? You think you're doing it right. Is there anybody here that's raised young kids into adulthood and realized maybe you didn't do it as right as you thought you were doing it? Okay. Right? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about then when he gets to fathers here, he's talking about the person who's come to another place of life. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And the only time he does this, he repeats that phrase. I've written to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I just want to say something. What the heck is the one who was from the beginning mean? I get coming overcoming the evil one. I get being joyful in the Lord. But, oh, but the, the one who knew him, for, what does that mean? I've told you before, let me just quickly reiterate again, I think the best way to understand the sense of this passage is to think about the book Don Quixote. Don Quixote is this book written in Spanish a long time ago, and, and basically what Cervantes says is he writes this old guy who's so poor of sight, and he thinks that there's all of these dragons out there in the world, and he thinks I'm an old man, but I've got to go out and slay the dragons. So he goes out, and he tries to beat up what turned out not to be dragons, but windmills. They're not the harmful thing that he thought they were. They're nothing, but he's still doing battle with nothing. Now, this is actually Cervantes' critique on much of what we're talking about right now, frankly. Let's be honest, okay? But the bottom line is, is that, is that when he says, the difference between Cervantes and us is, when we get to this young man, you have had victory over the evil one. You are strong. God's word remains in you. You've had victory over the evil one. Don Quixote is trying to suggest there are no evil things in the world. Now, that's not really what he's trying to suggest, but just go with me, okay? 
because then we got to go into book club, all right? But, but the bottom line is, is what we're going after is there really are things in the world that need to be done. There really are things in the world that are evil. There really are things that need to be gone after. Caring for the poor is one of them. We're not talking about domination of Christians over other people groups, that kind of war. We're talking about going and slaying the injustices in the world, slaying uh, sex slavery, slaying all of these things that are happening, injustices, poverty, all of these things. We're talking about going out and being God's heart, his hands and his feet, in the middle of the battle of bringing God's love and heart to the world. So that's very much what we're supposed to be doing. The part, this is the one. The one who is from the beginning. I don't understand how to understand that. Except to say something like this. I'm, now longer, I'm no longer a young man and I know something about battles. There comes a season in battle where you get old enough to where your vigor, you know, isn't such as it once was and you don't want to go to battle anymore. And you don't for one season. And guess what? The young bucks go out there and you're thinking it would be good for them to learn and everything else. And what you're thinking to yourself is, is you know, I know they're going to get along fine without me, but I also still think I'm critical to the, ver to the process, right? And so you're kind of expecting them to succeed, but maybe not like flourish. And then this rude awakening happens. They actually did some something new, something you wouldn't have thought of. And it caused them to flourish in a new way. You actually get the humbling moment of discovering that you might have been the impediment to greater victory. In fact, the more that you have to take this humbling moment, which, which is mirrored in the decay of the body, I, I mean that, I know it's kind of funny to say it, but I mean the, the loss of testosterone and muscle mass and all this kind of thing. There's literally this thing of, you know, when I'm watching a quarterback in the NFL, which I hope to have been at one point in time, when I'm watching a quarterback that is the same age as my kids, there's another moment in life that I'm having to deal with, ego-wise. Right? And all of a sudden, if you're humble, you start looking at that and you go... It wasn't, you know, there's a lot of things that I was doing that I thought I was doing really well. And now that I'm reflecting on them, now that I'm contemplating, what, is a, what does a person that gets to a grandparent age do? They tell stories. They become reflective. Right? They're reworking what they thought they knew. And when you do that, you start seeing how it turns out you were in the way a lot. In fact, what it turns out if you really start getting there, it turns out, you know all those dragons that you thought you were slaying? You were. It's real. But it isn't actually critical like you thought it was. God's actually in control. He really does have it. There's something about learning how to get out of the way. Becoming old is about becoming humble. Truly humility. Truly, seeing your faults, not beating yourself up about them, learning, growing, so that you can parent them to a generation that's coming up and doesn't know these things yet. This is what God intended. He intended this mix, this, 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 this flavoring, this, this thing to be taking place. I said a second ago, this is not just for men. The, the, the scripture is talking about men. Let me say something, though. Let me make it really clear. This is just one scripture where I could get this. There's many I could use. Older women, teach what is good, and so train the young women. The same thing that was being said in that first John passage is being said right here. This isn't about men and women, or, or men. This is about men and women. This is about a stage of life. This is about a process. And if I had to tell you what that process was about, I would say it's about wisdom. If I had to say what a rough equivalency, it's not an equivalency at all, it's sort of a subset. But if I had to say, if for the purposes of this conversation, what knowing him who was from the beginning is about, I'd have to say it's about becoming wise. What is wisdom? Real simple, what's wisdom? Here's what we think it is. Being smart. That is categorically not true. It's not what it is. Smart's in there, 
But what it is, is it's learning from what's happened. It's having experienced things. It's having grown kids up from little kids and thinking it works a certain way and then discovering it doesn't actually work that way. Or it does to some extent and it doesn't to some extent. And then learning this. You know what, you know what grandparenting's a lot about? Getting a second chance. Right? See, there's something about, I've been there, done that, watched that. I know my kids are, you know, and they're thinking, but, you know, they come in and they do another thing at another level in another way. They're bringing something to the table that's critical. It's critical. Let me ask you a question. Wisdom in today's culture, where do you see it? Let me ask you an even better question. How important is wisdom in our culture? Here's the answer. It is definitely beneficial, right? It's better to have wisdom than to be a fool. Period, right? It's beneficial to have wisdom. But here's the truth about a safe and prosperous culture. It's not actually critical. If you live in one of the war-torn regions of the world right now, there are tribal elders who have been through war and been through negotiations and been through peace and been through all of these other, and they know from experience what works and what doesn't work and why it doesn't work and why it does work and so on. And there's always the value of something new. I've already said it and I'll continue to say it. If old people think their way of doing it is the only way to do it, they're wrong. That's not humble. They haven't learned the primary and first lesson of becoming a true father, a true mother, a true parent. The true parent is the person that's become humble and is as willing to learn from the young as they are to pour in. Because there is something new that they're bringing and you need to pick that up. You need to know what's essential and what's just marginal or what's just stylistic. But when you get to that place, there's these tribal elders in these war-torn places. And if the young people do not pay attention to those tribal heirs, what is the end result for the community? Death. To be conquered by the other tribe that had more wisdom about how to do a battle tactic, about what it meant, about the, the deceptions of war, about all the different things. Do you see it? <coughs> wisdom in that instance is not just beneficial... It's survival. Go to a prosper, go to, a, go to Bangladesh where they do not have prosperity. There's the young guy who's trying to figure out how to protect us against next year's flood and all he knows is what? The last five. But there's the tribal guy, the, the elder of the tribes, the elders of the tribe, and what they're saying is, is, I've been here. You know, every 20 years, big things happen. And what you've just built isn't gonna last. And we've got to do another thing altogether. That's wisdom. Yes, there's a certain amount of intelligence in it, but you don't have to be a brainiac. You just have to be humble. You just have to learn from the past. I want us to just think about this a little bit more. In our culture, if wisdom is just beneficial, but it's not survival... What takes over when wisdom isn't center point? See, those cultures that need wisdom to survive, what's the highest aim, the highest goal, the highest place? Wisdom. So everybody attains to wisdom. That's what they're striving for. That's what they're shooting for. But when wisdom isn't critical, then what? What becomes most important? We're experiencing it right now. Youth. Because it's more fun to be young. <laughs> you got vigor. You got life. If it's not critical that you're going to fail, just, you know, get the testosterone shot, get the plastic surgery, be young as long as you can. Right? Drink as much caffeine as you possibly can. Because just be young. It's more fun. And it's not critical. Let me make this practical for you. I'm having a conversation with a very, very smart person, very dear friend, and I didn't explain fully what I was talking about, so this isn't a slam on what he said at all. It was just we were just having a more casual conversation about this thing God's working in me, and we were talking about church transitions, and I said, here's one of my problems with church transitions right now. I never see a place being made for wisdom, for transition. I see 
break and new. I'm not seeing one standing on the shoulders of the next. Now let me make it clear. There is this principle of you can't put new wine in old wineskins. That's true. When you went from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that was new wineskins. That was, that is down, this is up. There was still some tradition that you were building on, but bottom line is that was truly something new, and it needed to be new, and God took it out of Jerusalem and moved it to other places so that it would truly be the new church. That also happened throughout the Old Testament, and it has happened in the New Testament. But let me tell you what happens a lot more than transitions into something totally new. Simple transitions. Where what is supposed to be happening is God has invested in a group of people and they have through their experience learned a certain amount of stuff and then the next generation comes and what they're supposed to do is not replace the old. They're supposed to come in and stand on the shoulders of what's come before. Now watch this. One plus one equals three. One, two, three. See it? When, you, when you're doing it this way, sometimes it needs to be utterly new, but most of the time, God is trying to do an accumulated thing. I was talking to him about church transitions, and I was saying, you know, I, I'm not seeing us make place for wisdom. I'm not seeing us make place for this thing that God wants to do so that it's built on the shoulders. And his response back was, is, you don't need to. If the new person comes in and screws up, so what? They're young, they'll recover. See, it's not critical. But it is coming at a cost. I'm a student of revivals. Because I think revivals are better than what we're doing right now. By a long shot. I think when God starts saving everybody, I think when the 60s Jesus movement happened and the van would pull up to the beach in Venice Beach and everybody was high on the beach and they'd say, hey, do you want to go to a party? And everybody would get in the van and they would drive them to a church and every single person in the van would get saved and stay saved. How many people here come out of the Jesus movement? I'm one. I'm at the tail end of it. Okay? Millions of people got saved and are the backbone of the church today. I think revival's better than what we're doing. I think it's easier. I think it's more fun. I think there's all kinds of great things about it. But as a student of revival, here's what I've learned about it. And I learned this from the guy who was the head of the biggest revival this country's ever seen called the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. And here's what Jonathan Edwards has to say about it. He wrote two books during the revival, at which time he said, this is what's going on and you people are criticizing us, need to back off and blah, 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 right? But then he gets to a third book after it's over and he's critiquing his own first two books. He's critiquing the ideas in them. And if I can get down to the heart of it, here's what he says. We failed to learn from what had come before. Has anybody in here ever been in a revival of any size? I've been in two or three. Here's what happens when you're in revival. At first, you can't be anything but on your knees and humble and thanking God. Because so much is happening that you've got nothing to do with it. If you're not just thankful, you're just an idiot, right? So you're just thanking him, man. He's just awesome. This is incredible what God is doing. But then here's what happens. You start doing a whole lot of stuff. Services every night, preaching all the time. Not really taking proper time to hear the red line, but there's all kinds of noise that's starting to get in there. And pretty soon, there's this attitude that creeps in and it goes something like this. I know that the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And I know that this isn't totally new that we're doing. But this is new. This revival that we're having is not like any of those that have come before. This is different. God's moving through us more. A pride. Pride goeth before a fall. What happens is, is they fail to learn from what had happened before. And the revival collapses on itself. This is Jonathan Edwards saying this. This is my study of many, many revivals. Interestingly, Toronto and Brownsville, some of you know what those words mean. They were revival things. To Brownsville and Toronto both used Jonathan Edwards' first two books. You could buy them in the bookstore at either one of those churches. The first two books that Jonathan Edwards did. Guess what you couldn't find? The third one, the one that critiqued it. In fact, it was so out of print that at the time when Brownsville and Toronto were happening and I was learning, I realized that Edwards had written a third book 
could not find it. I like to buy my books. I could have got it from a, a library somewhere, although I wouldn't have known where. And this is before digital publication was getting big. But the bottom line was, I had to pay, pay I think I paid like 125 bucks to have the third book reprinted by a business that did antique books. That's how out of print it was. <laughs> the one that was the most important. Now, by the way, let me say, if you want to look at this thing, don't get the one that's concerning present-day revival in New England, blah, blah, blah. There's a very long title. That's what Jonathan Edwards does. Okay. Get the one. It's, it's, it's the English translation of an English book. Okay. And Jonathan Edwards is so dense when he writes. It's unbelievable. But get the one. It's called The Experience That Counts. Short little paperback. It won't have this idea in there because, again, it's a short little paperback compared to a really long book. But the point is it'll have things about this kind of stuff. And I think it's a book everybody ought to have because it teaches you the difference between the things that catch you up and the things that are really God. Now, having said that, and I didn't want to go too deep into that, but I just want to say, I believe that there's no reason why any revival should end. We think of them cyclically, that they have a life cycle. They don't have to. God would like to be in revival all the time. The reason why he can't is because he gets to the place to where we're making so many errors that it's more harmful than good for us, and that's when it ends. If we would humble ourselves, if we would stand on the shoulders of those who have come before, if we would look back and realize this isn't new and there are problems and figure out what they are and do your best to get through them and live in dependency upon God with no pride, I think we would learn things to a degree that it would, there's no reason why the revival should end. By the way, I'm joined in that with Jonathan Edwards who says it was our mistakes that ended it and other than that, God would have kept doing it. Why? Because God likes bringing people to him. <laughs> Now, I could argue this slightly differently at another time, but do you get the basic point? What I'm saying is, is wisdom is important. Now, go to our culture right now and tell me where you find wisdom. Tell me in business what happens. Is there when the guy, you brought in a CEO or a president, and the president grew the company, and it's all awesome, and it's all going great, and everything else, and it gets to a certain place, and all of a sudden, the president who is, and I, my mentor is a guy who took a company from $100 million to $900 million dollars. I'd say you, I would call that a successful president, wouldn't you? Right? Now, he, when I talk to him about this stuff, and I'm talking to him a lot about this stuff because he's older still, and I'm talking to him about this, and he's just fascinated with what the Lord's doing here. And he said, everything you're saying so tracks with what I did. He said, when I was the president, I was living on caffeine. <laughs> it was intravenous all day long, and it was the only way that as an older guy I could possibly keep up with all the demands of the job. And as I was saying this, he stopped me at one point and he said, I would be such a different president today. I would do this entirely differently. Why? See, here's what happened at that particular company. His reign, you know, he got to where I'm done. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've, I've done it. I can't do anymore. Right? And then what happened? They hired a new guy and what did he do? took the broom to all the old and swept it out the door and we're going to do it right because we know better. Now, the truth is sometimes that's true, <laughs> right? But not all the time. And the problem is tell me one business that truly in this day and age is actually bringing this other dimension that's saying that which has come before is important. We're going to hire a president who understands the importance of what came before. Yes, we want you to bring something new. And yes, we're going to work through this. But the bottom line is, we don't want to be one to the next, rub, moving out the old and stay right here at two. We want to be the new one standing on the shoulders of the old one so we can get to three. And then the next one comes and we get to four. And the next one comes and we get to five. I, I just need to go list a little bit more with you on this. Think about politicians. Tell me where the wise politicians have gone. Here's how we think of the older, wise politicians these days. Here's how we think of them. They're compromised, and they need to be voted out. 
And some of them are compromised and corrupt and need to be voted out. But is it all of them? Here's what we do now with our politicians. I said it was an obsession with the young. Here's what we do now. You, if you have a record in politics, can you get elected hardly anymore? In a big, big race where there's going to be lots of media money so that it's not about hearing candidates, but it's about hearing what other people are saying about candidates. When you get into those kind of markets and those kind of races, if you have a record, it doesn't matter what you did and why you did it. It just matters how somebody can spin it. And if that will take in people's minds, that guy's gone. Period. And so here's who we do elect. People that are young with no record. People that we can write our hopes and dreams on. Now, I'm not just talking about Barack Obama here. I'm talking about what we're doing in congressman races, in senatorial races, in gubernatorial races, in these big races. What we do is we want to raise up the young guy on whom, because they have no record, we can write our hopes and dreams. And then we're surprised when two things happen. One, they turn out not to be who we define them to be. <laughs> big shock. And two, they turn out not to actually have the skill set to succeed. They don't have that. And the people that do have that are saying, I would never get into that because I'm too smart. I want to have a life. I would love to serve my country, but I'm not going to go through that. This is going to destroy me and my family in ways that are just patently lies and unfair from both sides. It is ridiculous where you've come to. We have lost Wisdom. We've lost the value of wisdom. We've lost anything that is going after wisdom. And if you want to know why this affects you, look no further than the mortgage crisis. Because here's what happened in business and in politics that affected you damningly. When we had the Great Depression, that was a problem. And smart people got together and looked back and said, there are some things that we should do to protect against this ever happening again. And we lived with those rules and regs for a generation. And then a person came in that knew not Pharaoh. The new people came in and they said, these rules and regulations are restrictive. And by the way, some of them may have been. But what they said was, is, unchain us, unfetter us, and we will take us to the moon. Guess what was being said in 1915 before the 1929 crash? Unfetter us and we will take you to the moon. <laughs> now, I'm not some left wing. I want to regulate everything and tell you what kind of light bulbs you want to buy, okay? But what I am saying is where is wisdom? We unfettered and unregulated and then we're shocked to find that there were selfish and greedy people out there that would do immoral, un unethical, terrible things. These people were smart enough to know that these mortgages were no damn good. And they happened anyway. Because there were business leaders that were not being judged by the 10-year progress, but by the next quarter. And if you were a guy who wasn't playing in the mortgage game, you didn't have your job anymore because there were great profits being made that you were missing out on. Do you see? We need wisdom. <laughs> we need, I'm sorry for getting so intense about this. But I'm not wrong. I'm wrong somewhere. That's, that's not true. I am wrong, okay? But, but, but you get the point. This stuff that I'm talking about is not abstracted. It's affecting us. It's hurting us. It's only been about the last 50 years. Think about when wisdom left. Think about the television shows of the 50s. Father knows best. The grandparent that was raising the kids. Think about it now. The parents are idiots. The kids know everything. Thank you. <laughs> this is the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, even in the ways the rabbis, they had the Pentateuch, the history books, what we call the wisdom literature, and then the prophets. Now we have added to the end of that the New Testament. Right here is about where, and I, I get that this is, you know, but right here is where what we call wisdom literature starts. It starts at Job, and it goes through the Song of Solomon. And that is right about, uh, I'm just still in Isaiah a little bit, right there. 
Can I say something? Tell me where that book is. Tell me where the wisdom literature is in this Bible. This is the heart of God. He gave us history before so that we'd know what was important about it, and then he gave us history after so that we would understand it even more so. This is, wisdom is the heart of God. He says it in his word when he's talking about it. My child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instruction. What you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. Do you see what he's saying? It is beneficial for you to go after wisdom. It will help you. And by the way, if you don't, it's a fool that despises wisdom and discipline. We've become a nation of fools. I'm sorry, I love you. There's lots of wise people and everything else. But here's what's happening. We have made no place in our businesses. We have no, made no place in our politics. We have made no place in our churches for wisdom. When it comes time for transition, we're looking for the 33-year-old, and he's, it's out with the old and in with the new, and this is going to be the new great thing. And niche churches are cropping up all over the place, and they're doing wonderful jobs, and I go to them, and I love them. But I'm around long enough to know that there's a problem at the foundation of them. And here's what the problem is. A church is supposed to look like its community. And the community has children in it. And it has teenagers in it. And it has young people in it. And it has fathers in it. And it has grandparents in it. Fathers and mothers and it has grandparents. And that's what a church is supposed to look like. I'm telling you for me personally... God is moving on me. Uh, Kevin Prowlis sat up here and gave a great sermon last week. And the sermon, the basic idea behind the sermon, or one of the main points was, is, is, you know, no pain, no gain. I'm telling you, for about a year and a half, I've been in pain so that the Lord could start teaching me what he wanted to teach me. I simply wasn't open to it before. All of a sudden, I started realizing, I don't want to be in that meeting anymore. And it's not just because I don't want to be in the meeting. It's not just because I'm tired. It's because my heart used to be in it, and I couldn't wait to be in that meeting. I couldn't wait to brainstorm with those people and figure out what to do next because I was a young man that wanted to slay dragons. But then this transition started happening in me, and all of a sudden I start going, I, I just don't have a heart for that anymore, and I'm feeling like, now listen to me, and I love you, but I'm feeling like I'm being stolen from. And I don't mean, I, not by you at all, by the system. I feel like the, the deck is stacked, and the thing that God is calling me to, there isn't any place for. I, I used to, I, we, I was praying about this again just recently, and, and this is a stream that's just over the hill here. And you see those white waters? Guess where I live most of my life? I came off the bank as a new thing, and I went right into that white water, and I lived in that white water for years and years and years. And this is, you know, a picture, so it doesn't show them as great as they are, and they're not huge rapids, but you get the point. I lived in, I lived in Category 5 rapids for most of my life, and if I wasn't in Category 5, I wasn't happy. But you know what's becoming important to me now? There's these still small, quiet places it's not about scheduling time to prepare a sermon. It's about scheduling time to be with him who was from the beginning. And it's not about scheduling it. It's about being there, living there. I feel like there's this richness that God wants to bring to his body. Not just through me through every person in here that has reached a stage of life where you're going through what I'm going through. We're medicating ourselves through the pain of it so we're not getting it, so we're, you know, we, we have to do it for jobs and all this kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, here's the truth, guys. I'm sitting with some people and I'm talking about what's going on at this church. There are all kinds of kids coming from Odal. These are kids who do not have fathers. They do not know the Lord. They are coming here for all kinds. God is bringing this, this wave of young people into our church that need what? Exactly. The grandparent, the person that, that can give that extra moment, that can give that extra thing. It's not the parent of the young kids. They're still in the middle of the battle, for heaven's sakes. Right? The evil one, by the way, is not your children. Okay? It's what's trying to kill your children. Okay? But, but you get the point. There's all these people that are sitting here that God is, you know, what are we doing with this generation? Nothing. 
It is such a loss. Now, let me be clear. A lot of people who are older, you don't really want to put with some of these kids because they're not really like, you know, they're not really somebody you'd like to mentor somebody. You know why that's happening? Because we've never put before any of us the vision that that's what you're to do with your life. They're just trying to be young idiots like everybody else. Not that young people are idiots. You just, we just are. All of us are. Right? But do you understand the point here? The point is, is that God is trying to take these people into this moment where they're ready to parent not just their own grandchildren, but their spiritual grandchildren. See, I have a child, and genetically, I know what they're made to be. I know, you know, I know they're genetic. I know their personality makeup, right? I don't know it perfectly, and that's a mistake we make as parents, right? We think we know everything that they're thinking, and we don't because they're only half us, okay? And if you think you understand your spouse, <laughs> you know, good luck. <laughs> Okay, so you don't know your kid any more than you know your spouse, really. But there's parts of the kid that you do know. And there's a genetic, there's a thing that is happening that you're connecting with and growing in and that you can help them with. But here's the truth about a church. You think you're here because you like the sermons or you like the worship or you like the location or, I don't know, you know, whatever, right? Or, you know, you're, you're here because you think you chose to be here. Here's what the truth of a church is supposed to be. You're here because God told you this is the place I want you to be because I have children for you if you're older and if you're younger because I have a father for you or a mother for you I'm bringing you into a place where I want you to connect with somebody else I want you to go to this other level Julie Brunk is one of the most outstanding human beings that I've ever met in my life and I say that without any embarrassment or or puffery whatsoever I simply have never met a person like Julie Brunk when Julie Brunk was born she had all four of her grandparents she had all, I think, except for just a couple of, are you in here, Julie? Yeah. How many of the, how many of the, the great grandpa or grandparents were there? Every one of the great grandparents. How many great greats were there? Uh, two. two. So that's four, eight, 14 grandparents. And how, what, was the, what was the furthest distance that any one of those grandparents lived from you? 30 miles? No, not, not even that much. 14 grandparents. 14 grandparents. One time Julie told me, she said, you know, when I was in high school, I was tempted to smoke. You know, kids were starting to smoke. It was cool. You know, I was tempted to do that. Kevin taught us last week, don't be cool, but, you know. But I, I wanted to be cool, and I, I wanted to smoke. And she said, but here's what stopped me from smoking. I had this image in my mind that I'd be smoking one day, and my grandmother would walk around the corner and see me smoking, and she would look at me, and she wouldn't say a word, but I couldn't take the disappointment that would be in her heart that I was the source of that. That's helpful, isn't it? For those of you who had kind of wilder childhoods. I'm not saying everybody with 14 grandparents still kind of have a wild childhood. It can happen. But you understand it's less likely. I'm one of the increasing numbers of people who did not grow up with any grandparents in my life. We, they visited us maybe once a year. We visited them once a year. And they were, except for one of them whose name was Mutta, there was no influence there whatsoever. And Mutta, I didn't know as anything but just this, this uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I won't. Uh, she was wonderful, but I didn't know her as a person. There's a benefit that God was intending to bring to a family. That's what a church is. There's a benefit. There's a helps. It's, it's all of us connecting. A few weeks ago, you know, we did something, and we had people say, do you have trouble hearing God? And then we had other people write down, I can hear God. And then we connected the people that did and didn't. And as far as I know, it's going great. But let me show you an even better example right now, and I'm ending with this. I just saw what time it was. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I need you guys to come on up, okay? So this is the threefold. And I want you to see a multi-generational, intergenerational threefold. It's Roger Miller, who is clearly the funnest grandpa in the history of the world. Okay? Ed Bechtold, Michael Weber, and I put Chris Thatcher at the end. And Chris, you're very much a part of this threefold. And boy, has Roger made that clear to me. But could you do something for me for one second? Because I want people to see something. Could you stand back just a little bit? Could you three come right here? Come forward. Two years ago, these three guys were at a men's retreat. And I need the microphone, by the way. These three guys were at a men's retreat, and they signed up for a threefold. And you know what most threefolds look like? If you're, if you're his age, you have people his age. And if you're his age, you have people his age. And if you're his age, you have people. But these three guys got together. And I even went to Roger at the time. He said, are you sure you want to do this? And he was like, of course I do. 
Could you guys just talk for a second? Could you tell us? I'm talking about this intergenerational, multi-generational. Could you, and Chris, you can come in now. Chris came in later, and he's been the fourth member. But I just want you guys to just tell me who's got something. I just want you to just share with us the value of what God's been doing with the intergenerational part of it. What I see as the value is if you look here, basically it's not exactly correct, but we have the 60s, we have the 50s, I mean age-wise, 50s, 40s and 30s, not exactly the same, but we have grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We really do, all three of us, look at things just a little bit differently than the other one. I have been able to learn from Michael what his generation thinks about things. I've been able to learn from Ed some parenting skills that I never had as a parent. I've learned from Chris, as a brother almost, the way that we can love each other through, through a family. So each one has brought a little different perspective to the group, but we all, I think, have grown and grown closer to the Lord because we are all coming at things a little differently, but we love each other enough that we are able to tell each other what we think and where we may be wrong. Michael, I'd love for you to speak to this for a second, would you? I, your personal story is probably too long, but would you just kind of give a little bit of why this particular group is so important to you? Um, yeah, to, I guess um, it's been sort of a strength and a fallacy of mine is always looking for a father figure that's never been there in my life, um, at least especially a Christian one. And so some components of that um, are filled within this group, but also um, it's making me realize um, by what I can provide to them how much of a man God has made me. Um, and what I can look forward to when my family starts and the experience I can gain from them. I want to tell you something. Michael came to me for years and said, I need a father figure, I need a father figure, I need a father figure. I couldn't do it. There's a lot of people that ask me, if I couldn't do it. And I, I grieved about it, I prayed about it, I was asking God what to do about it and so on. Before this threefold happened, Michael was just another guy in the congregation. Since this threefold has happened, Michael is now running the back of the house Michael is now the guy who brought Future of Forestry to us on his own against my resistance the first time. I'm not kidding you. With the help of his threefold, I'd like to have you know. With the help of his threefold. But do but you see what's happened? I mean, and now Michael, just as he said right there, all of a sudden I'm beginning to realize I have value. These are older people that are seeding into me, and I'm seeding into them, and it's making me feel different. It's growing me. It's increasing me. You see that? Ed, Chris, do you guys want to say anything? I know for me I had... Uh, You're on. I know that uh, for years I had the chance to have guys in my life, but it was really none of their business what was going on in my life. And I always wondered why I ended up in a mess. And I've been in this uh, fourfold for since January. And the different perspectives are great. And not only are they planting seeds in me that are coming to fruition, but I'm planting seeds in them. And I never thought that I had a, a right to share with other people. And now I do. And I feel real love amongst these guys. And I look forward to every Sunday morning that we get together. And that's the way God intended it for us. And I really sense the brotherly love, the Father's heart here, um, watching these guys, their eagerness. And we are able to talk about all that's going on in our life without danger of it going outside that group. Do you want to say something, Matt? I think it's just good to uh, get perspective. It's pretty easy to uh, just surround yourself with people that are the same and uh, it's, it's been good and, and uh, I don't know, just it's, it's good to just realize you can grow no matter how old you are, how young you are, so I appreciate it. I just, I just love this idea that, that what God is doing in this, in this group is, look at how much different human beings they are because they're in intimate, real relationship with people coming from a very different place. And it's growing them. It's changing them. It's making them see life and the world. Here's my point. If we were doing a lot of this, you know a lot of those people who we said shouldn't probably be mentors? If they were going through this process, they wouldn't be stuck in the mud. They wouldn't be that. Not, you know, it wouldn't be 100% that way. But the point is, is we'd be raising up people just by the process that were wiser, that were more useful, that were more helpful. Do you see that? This is for all of us. This is for every single person in this church. I think God is not just saying to Lake Sam. 
I, I told you this before on Restoring Teams. Before anybody was talking about discipleship, punk, before everything else, I said, there's something happening in the church. This is what I think it is. Months later, it came to pass. I don't do that to say pat my back. I do it to do this. Watch and see if what I'm about to say right now is correct. And if it is, know that it's the Lord. Because what I'm telling you is, is I think you're going to find a wave of research starting to come out. My guess is it's, it's no, about a year away, somewhere in that time frame. And the wave of research is going to start saying, oh my gosh, there's this intergenerational thing that we have lost, and the churches that are fighting it are experiencing a favor of God, a growth in their people, a discipleship that is transforming them much more so. And I think you're going to find a very strong, as you found with the other things, steering teams and discipleship, you're going to find a very strong movement back to this. Because there's an entire generation right now that God is wanting to empower, and it's for the benefit of all, including themselves. 